0: Hello everybody and welcome back to Pod Sci, sci a podcast where we discuss all things COG sci, sci related. My name is Shelley. And I'm Rachel. And we're two teachers who are part of the group COG sci, sci, which stands for Cognitive Science and Education. And we're a group of science teachers who are all excited and passionate about using evidence-based pedagogy in our classrooms to enhance teaching and learning.
1: So um, Barack Rosenstein, some of you may have heard, was an educational psychologist and he published his paper on research-based teaching strategies back in 2012, uh, which were then called the 10 Principles of Instructions. Now, lots of you may have read or heard Tom Sherrington's book on this research. And actually, in these three episodes, we will be looking at three aspects of Rosenstein's principles, specifically effective explanations, checking for understanding, and independent practice. And today we'd like to welcome Tom Millichamp, uh, focusing on effective explanation. So thank you very much for being here,
2: Tom. Thank you for having me.
0: So first of all, I suppose a question we give to everybody would just be, um, if you could give us a little introduction and tell us a bit about how you got involved with CogSciSci.
2: Yeah, of course. Um, so I'm Tom Millichamp. I'm a lead practitioner at Holy Lodge High School in Sandwell, um, which is near Birmingham. I got involved in CogSciSci during my PGCE year, actually. and. Through Twitter and things had started reading some blogs and becoming interested in what these people had to say. Um, I went to one of the early meetings of Coxai at Brunel University um, and just was really welcomed by the group and they sort of encouraged me to, to write a little bit and now I help run some of the things that they do, help organize some of the events um, and occasionally try and help out by running their social media <laughs> Oh yeah, like running around
0: at conference taking taking pictures and and tweeting away. Yes, yeah, I've doing
2: that. That's my job. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, and Tom's um, gifs or gifs are amazing. Like, honestly, best choices ever. <laughs> She's perfect for explaining a lot of these things, actually. <laughs> okay, right, let's go straight into it. Um, so today, like I said earlier, we're going to be focusing on uh, effective explanations, which I think we, you know, all three of us kind of think that would be the first steps in making sure we can teach effectively. So um, Tom, can you tell us a bit more about, you know, what counts as effective explanations and like how would, um, like, why is it important and what does it mean?
2: Yeah I guess so answering that question I, I guess an effective explanation our only like good gauge of it is whether a student can take in the information you're trying to explain and you know use it in some way or recall it later down the line um, and I I guess in some sense like that is an overly simplistic model that makes the world sound really perfect and like you're going to say things kids will remember all of it and it, it really doesn't work that way um, so the things that I have in mind when i 'm thinking about explanations um, are the prior knowledge of the students, and i 'm going to talk about a few different ways that like, you might use these ideas of prior knowledge and the idea that working memory is limited and that students can 't have too much on the go at once and These are the two main factors that i 'm considering when I plan an explanation, so whether it 's plan explanations for my own lessons or whether it 's planned explanations when we 're writing springboard key Stage three science. Um I do wonder how many times I'll get to say that today. Um, but both of those places, I've been using these two kind of lenses to view my explanations through. Um, so would now be a good time to like go through what I'm thinking in each one of those chunks, do you think? Yeah, the
1: for, yeah, it. Go for it.
2: OK, so um, in terms of prior knowledge, I think almost everyone agrees, um, although they might use different words for it, that prior knowledge is exceptionally important. So in Rosenshine, he talks about reviewing previous learning, um, clearly pointing to the fact that what they've previously learned will be helpful for what they're about to learn. If you look at maybe someone like Ausubel's work, who, who doesn't, um, doesn't talk about schemas and things, but really appreciates the fact that what is already in students' heads is key to what they can learn in the future. Um, Sarah Cottingham's book, I really like on, on that. I or spells work in general, or whether you look at like schema theory, and the schema theory being that you know, in our heads we can view what's in our heads as some sort of mental map. Um, new knowledge will be linked to old knowledge. So a lot of different research, a lot of different authors seem to point to the same thing that prior knowledge is key. And um, what we've worked on at Holly Lodge a lot this year is separating prior knowledge into two categories there's the category of like scientific stuff that students have previously been taught that we obviously want to activate and get them thinking about for the lesson i I guess this is quite an academic um prior knowledge but there's also just the other stuff that's in their heads like the real world prior knowledge students have experience of lots of these scientific explanations that we're trying to deliver scientific i don't know um occurrences that happen around them in daily life. And we need to be using those in our ideas too. Tom, so can I
0: ask you a really quick question on of that? Of course. Um, is that something you're just doing in your science team or is that a push across the whole school and all subjects?
2: Um, it's currently just in the science team. Yeah. Um, and it's something that's also a part of Springboard KS3 Science. <laughs> but um, like the way we try to do it at Holly Lodge is when we check the prior knowledge of students, we have a few questions that will be previous scientific knowledge um like you would normally have i guess in your lessons to make sure that they know the stuff they need to know to learn the next thing and we try and do those as regularly as possible we don't take it for granted the students will know everything even just from the last lesson but then it just in the simple tweak that one of our amazing teachers did is she just put some of the questions in italics and the italic ones are more general everyday bits of knowledge that are relevant um and we just try and incorporate those as much as we can, because then you you might spot some misconceptions already in the room that you can help to address. You might realize that actually no one in this class has got any experience of i don't know like maybe, maybe it's something as simple as like going to the seaside, therefore, I can't use that for my explanation because they've not got the knowledge there to draw upon, so just checking that in both forms has been really important and helps us to to write more effective explanations because the explanations link much more clearly and strongly with what is currently in their heads. Um, we don't want any of the ideas that we are trying to get across to be independent islands within the brain because it's just a recipe for disaster, I think.
0: Yes. Um, I think that sounds similar to what we've done. So we're doing a big curriculum development piece at the moment um, and it's starting in year seven and nine and building up. And all our curriculum documentation that we've got um has a column of like what's the prior knowledge whether it be key stage two or key stage three whatever came before obviously um and yeah when i've been because we have booklets when i've been writing the booklets for that i found it so much easier to write a clear explanation knowing exactly what i'm expecting students to know or what i what i should check they definitely know it's been really really helpful to have that
2: yeah absolutely Um, and i think there's probably a lot that just implicitly we take for granted that they know mm -hmm. yeah um that, that is outside of the bounds of the national curriculum. You know, if it is looking at uh, like the human body, um, do they really understand that like they are made of bones? And you know, can they point to some of them? Like, do they believe some of that stuff from the off? Particularly when we get to abstract ideas in science, um, we we want to be sure that students have the ability to think in the abstract, and if it's like year nine, that they have the abstract idea of an atom and understand what it really means to be able to build from it. Because otherwise, we're just building from nothing and we don't get anywhere. And, and misconceptions just ensue left, right and center. Um, mm-hmm. and I guess that's my, the main, my main lens is that I'm really trying to link their everyday experience of science with the scientific explanations that we're trying to give. Therefore, I want to check in their heads that these two things mash together, essentially, and that they, they don't build life experience as just one separate entity in their brain and then scientific explanations as a separate entity and they never meet because my concern is that in the gap often that's where misconceptions flourish because students are like well i see this in everyday life but sir said this therefore i'm gonna like combine these ideas together in in a weird and unusual way um have a, a favorite example of that but it doesn't work so well on a podcast but it's that <laughs> students have got like they fully accept that the earth like most students fully accept the earth is a sphere mm. but from their lived experience they look around and go it looks pretty flat here mm. and they also look and go there is a sky so they can take these three things that like we would happily teach them like yeah it's pretty flat around here yeah the earth is a sphere yes there's definitely sky and they combine it together to go well therefore the earth is a sphere with a f- like a chunk nice flat chunk cut off the top of it i live on the flat bit and (laughs) the sky is the remainder of the sphere that would have been there from what i cut off whoa and it's like a really interesting misconception where you see that students have managed to fit together three facts either from their lives or from your teaching and they've come up with something weird because the links that you know teachers have made there haven't been clear enough that Oh, well, the sphere is a really, really big sphere, and if you've got a really, really big sphere, it's going to look pretty flat. And just that little tweak to the explanation there might help to stop this misconception from ensuing. And I always yeah. I just think that is such a like as an expert, you look at that misconception and go, "That is utterly mad. How could you think that? But for a novice, that, that student's thinking, well, this makes total sense. I've ticked all the boxes: sphere, flat, sky, done. That's and an like, interesting They're not, they're not yeah. wrong for doing that. That's um, quite an interesting example of... Yeah, how that is a really good issue. Yeah. 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 And so I think it's a really, really good lens to view explanations through is, you know, sitting in a lesson, whether you're a leader or whether you're just observing anyone, try and sit in there as a novice and think, what is it that I could misconstrue about this explanation? Because that's the thing that we, as science teachers, probably find the most hard is because we are experts. Um, and throughout all of this that I'm going to talk about, that the separation between novices and experts is—it's like a hidden factor that mm-hmm. we're not trying to explain any of these ideas to experts in science. We're trying to explain them to novices, and therefore the explanations are slightly different than if I was to explain to you what the mitochondria does, or mm-hmm. you know, trying to explain to you what forces are. They need to be aimed at novices and draw. In the prior knowledge from slightly different places a lot of the time Mm.
0: so then because I suppose what you're talking about now is like the bit uh when it's when you're scripting I suppose isn't it when you're planning your lesson thinking about the explanation you're going to give so I'm interested to know what then once you've got that explanation in mind um actually a couple of things how would like um no let's just go for how do you then deliver that clearly in a classroom like from teachers that you've seen with the most effective, delivering the most effective
2: explanations, what are they doing? Yeah. So I think the first thing that the most effective teachers here are doing is they know exactly what they are trying to deliver. Mm-hmm. Like they check the prior knowledge and they know that the first thing I'm del- going to deliver is this, and this is the precision of the thing I'm trying to say. And it's really clear that they have an aim. And it, I guess it's quite surprising how many times you go into a... um lesson whereby the teacher maybe is less clear and is therefore being a little bit vague because if you haven't got a clear aim which like in the sentence i guess if you haven't got a clear (laughs) aim for where it's going you start to meander um and that's that's one of the big things straight away is just know in in this this is where i'm aiming this is what i'm trying to get to then planning the shortest route to get there um and you can see in lots of the teachers explanations in the best teachers that we've got they've clearly chunked up their explanation to get from a to b in the simplest possible route with chunks that are manageable Mm. we're just going one step at a time so that we're not overloading students we're going let's start on the firm foundations of your prior knowledge and let's go one step further what's the logical consequence of this and then go one more um and it it's that level of like attention to detail about what a chunk is that I feel makes the biggest difference. Anything that is an implicit step, the best teachers have planned for, and they've made it explicit and whether that's an implicit steps in calculations, like doing unit conversions or whether it's implicit steps in like huge biological processes where we sometimes we forget to say, you know, we just take it for granted that students know that restoration leads to energy making it really explicit that these links exist i think is important then what I, and so what our teachers then do i guess is that they've got the students to be focused on that explanation because all of that wonderful planning and checking the prior knowledge and planning out your chunking and knowing exactly what you're going to teach is completely irrelevant if students aren't paying any attention to you Mm. Um, and i know lots of schools have got their different ways of doing this and i don't We probably don't have a clear picture here of exactly what that looks like. We're not a school that does SLAM or STAR or any of those things. But I think we're all pretty agreed that we want students to not be doing other things whilst we're explaining stuff for the most part. Um, So we're trying to manage students' attention during that explanation. Um, And that, I I guess, I, I know that people sometimes have a problem with that. And I can see sometimes why, because as an adult, that's quite jarring sometimes to be told, you know, you've got to look exactly here and things. However, if you manage it in the right way and, you know, you're doing it with the warmth that our teachers do it, students are excited to learn this stuff. And we're just like harnessing their um, enjoyment and curiosity about the subject and just helping them see that they can get better if they're looking at the right things at the right time. So we want them to be looking at stuff they find interesting so in these explanations our staff are trying to start from places that are really concrete and from ideas that students understand and have seen before therefore can can build from that point um so you know i I know in adam box's science book he talks about starting from the concrete and moving to the abstract and going from familiar to unfamiliar as these directions of travel we try and embody that in our explanations in that. Rather than explaining changes of state by saying we go from solids to liquids to gases, well, let's give an example first. And maybe we pick the most obvious example of all, and we pick water because it's their everyday experience, and then we go one level more deep, like more interesting or deeper, and we look at gold, for instance, before we go to the abstract nature of, well, let's just apply this to everything. Let's say all solids can melt into liquids and all liquids can turn into gases. And missing those steps, and starting with the abstract instead, and just apply, just saying solids, liquids, gases, I think misses a lot for students, and they start to form like scientific understanding separately of their everyday experience, because we're not explicitly forcing that link. Um, so
0: so that then, those, I
2: think, are the big things for me. Yeah.
0: And then just on a very practical level, and Rach, maybe you can pitch in here as well. Maybe it'd be useful to just discuss like on a really practical level what are each of us doing when we are explaining something? So for example, um, I, and we spoke to Adam Boxer in, in our last episode about, I think I mentioned, uh, we mentioned his research ed video where it was dual, dual coding for teachers who can't draw and how from yeah. that mm-hmm. I started using a graphics tablet and I have like the PDF of my booklet on there, but I'm always swiping to the side, blank canvas. I'm drawing things from the beginning. I'm modeling the way I think about things, for example. Um, Rach, you you said you use a visualizer. So how how do you use that
1: to explain stuff? Like I I live by my visualizer. Like I cannot Mm -hmm. not have my visualizer, like Mm -hmm. basically. So I think a lot of times is because the other thing that came to mind was uh, split attention. So, uh, you know, sometimes how people would have, I don't know, like a PowerPoint on the screen and then you would have like a whiteboard on the side of the screen. And then you would probably like try to explain something by showing pictures on the PowerPoint. But then you should also try to write on write stuff on the whiteboard. And sometimes I find like, you know, which one are they supposed to focus on? Um, and, so <laughs> and then their exercise
0: of... book might be a different they might be looking at a blank exercise book trying to get that. Yeah, all down, yeah? Mm-hmm. It,
1: they're like, which one do I need to copy? Like some of them might be copying stuff on the PowerPoint, whereas actually, you know, I want you to be writing things that I'm writing down. So I just tend to like, say, what I do now is I would say, if I know I'm going to have a chunk of explanation to do, I would just say, okay, I would actually ask them to just close their books entirely. Like, don't write anything down. And and then I would go through maybe some... Pictures on the screen to explain, you know, different structures and ask lots of questions to kind of get them to tell me what they're seeing. And, and are you of...
0: drawing them like you do on your wonderful YouTube oh, I channel? i do that
1: later on. Like if okay. I have to show microscopic images of, let's say, blood vessels, Fine. for yeah. example, like I want to show them, okay, look, this is an artery, this is a vein. What's similar? What's similar between them or what's different between them? And elicit those things from what they could see and like, you know, linking to can you see your veins on your wrist and that kind of stuff? And then once I'm done with that, then I would just show my my blank paper uh, under the visualizer and I draw out exactly what the key points are <laughs> because often I just find so many people just start copying everything down. I'm like, don't do that. So I would just kind of, it depends. Sometimes I just go straight for the visualizer to explain things. Sometimes I want to show them some pictures first to kind of link to what they probably know before. <laughs> um, uh, and it, it kind of depends because I don't, like to get them to just copy things after I finish explaining them I just kind of like show my thinking um under the so, visualizer so what does
0: students so then is it you've done that they've watched and then is it into if questions or what are they writing if I'm,
1: if I'm using the visualizer they would literally be writing down what I'm writing down mm-hmm. um but that would probably be after I've explained it so I yep. would explain it once and then as I draw it out I will explain it again like maybe one more time just kind of Mm -hmm. like you know illustrating the whole thing out it depends it depends on what i'm actually teaching sometimes i do it in different ways um so yeah like for example if i'm teaching photosynthesis and respiration in a level which literally goes through the entire thing um (laughs) from glycolysis what happens to glucose i would literally go i would explain it step by step for them to follow because Mm -hmm. otherwise there's just no other way to do it in point of view. So chunking was really important. I think that also links to what Tom was mentioning, because you mentioned two things right earlier. He said um, two major things that you follow, which is prior knowledge, which is absolutely essential, and then working memory is limited. Yeah. What's the second thing? So I'm guessing the chunking bit is absolutely essential, kind of linking to that concept of, you know, working memory is limited. So let's do it one step at a time.
2: Yeah. I think there's one place that we'd probably expand on that and have been working on a lot this year is that given that working memory is limited just chunking up your explanation isn't the only thing that you can do to to help with that I guess is that you want them having experienced an explanation that's been chunked up you want them to then do a little bit of thinking mm-hmm process that information to try and do a little bit of encoding or turn it into long-term memory or whatever you want to call it so that they're able to do the next bit because Mm. otherwise if you just deliver chunk after chunk after chunk after chunk then by the fifth sixth seventh eighth ninth chunk the limitations of working memory are still working against you like Mm. we need to get it shifted to the students doing the thinking So after we've delivered an explanation and, you know, here, we've got a whole bunch of staff that do things different ways. We've got, um, we tend to start with like big images on the slides and we're fortunate to have like big TV screens that can show this. So you can see the, like the wonders of nature and all of those amazing things we want to show. Then we've got a whole bunch of staff who are visualizer people and probably do like Pratesh Raishwara does of like plan their explanation on the left hand page and give your explanation on the right hand page so that you've got all of your notes there to help you but you look like an absolute wizard in front of the class which is nice <laughs> and it takes that principle that Shelley you said about starting from a blank page and building up in that sense and it's, it's really powerful for that I think we've got some people who are one note people as well here and we don't have say really in in what staff finds the best for them to do
1: Um, Mm.
2: we have some staff um, who for because they were dyspraxic and like found just writing neatly to a class really tricky they did want to use powerpoint and they manipulated powerpoint to make it work so that Mm. you know the the labels would transition in at the right time and things like that so um we don't really mind provided it fits the more like overarching principle of control the flow of the information so the students aren't overloaded. And once they've had like a chunk's worth of stuff, we make sure they do a bit of rehearsal with it. So um, it was Joe Castellino's blog on rehearsal that really got me thinking that it's such a powerful and underused phase of a lesson, I guess, that before you check that they've understood it, they need to have a chance to go and understand it because they're not necessarily. Encoding things whilst listening to explanation, like they need to go away and do some actual thinking. So we have a stage of rehearsal where sometimes it's like jotting note, jotting something down with maybe a structured activity. Um, We've stolen it from Teach Like a Champion, to be honest. We've stolen the idea of stop and jot and used it for our own purposes, and it's nothing like stop and jot was initially intended, really. But it's this just moment of them being able to consolidate what you've just said. So sometimes it's a blank page in a booklet with absolutely no guidance and they you encourage them to take a couple of notes afterwards not drawing the explanation or it's an activity that might be you know maybe a matching activity in year seven just because you're just trying to make sure that they've done a little bit of the thinking and it shouldn't be hard because you just explained it um it, it links quite a lot I think to like, check for listening things that people do because I think they're really powerful as a form of rehearsal as well um, and just giving our staff like an armory of these types of activities that they can or or techniques that they can use to have a go through these um, they what i've what I've noticed just allow people to allow students to to take it in and like I, I really like the word assimilation. I just think, A, it's a great word. But when that's used, like in, in the stuff of like, Orsabelle talks about it, that you have to assimilate new knowledge with your old knowledge, we've got to just provide a little bit of time for students to actually do that. Um, and that's what for I, us this I little sneaky rehearsal stage is about. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's so, that's actually something I've been working on with my booklets that I've been making. So I always have like an explanation and I put high quality notes in there so they can use them down the line. And then I was sort of before I was kind of jumping into like little uh, quick check activities or independent practice. But I just know like what I've now put in and was, which is working really well is a section which I just, I just call it like I think transform is the name I've gone for now. And it will be like uh, take what we've talked about and put it in a table or put it in a mind map or like yeah. make some notes. or And it's just just sit for a couple of minutes and think about what we've done. So yeah. I love that That's you're fine. doing that as well.
2: Just like organize it. and It's nice that you yeah. said, like, those techniques of like mind mapping or, you know, flow diagrams or whatever it is, just putting some order yeah. onto the new ideas that you just put in their head, I think can be really powerful. Yeah,
1: um, yeah actually, yeah. that links onto um, something called graphic organizers, which um, you guys probably have heard of before as well. Anyways, it's like mind map would be an example of graphic organizers. Uh, but the concept of how can't remember exactly who the person was who kind of did the research but it's the idea of how our memory works uh, visually and spatially so I heard this I first heard about this from a, a talk I think it was a research home back in COVID times by um, Oli Cavioli um, and he talks about how our memory is organized as visually and spatially so the fact that's like say for example when you're explaining something you will use hand gestures right you would say oh, on this side you would talk about this but then on the other hand you would do that So it's the concept of actually without realizing it you will probably group things into different bits of the space around you and that's kind of what a mind map does so actually you know that's really nice because the, it kind of relies on the students being able to kind of process the information for themselves they build their own mind maps they kind of put things in the particular organized way by themselves and it will actually help kind of build into their long-term memory spatially um which is which is a really good thing to do because and the other thing is um you talked about assimilation and rehearsal so i'm thinking things like hinge questions would be quite good is that kind of i know you've i've heard that like many yeah i guess um
2: I, I guess I think that's just the next step along is that you can only do a hinge question or a check for understanding after they've been given the opportunity to understand it. Mm, you know, and, and I think that comes in maybe in that moment. I know okay. you've got a future episode where you're talking about check for understanding. And <laughs> so, you know, I think, they, well, yeah, <laughs> little plug there. Um, but, but that that's that fits after this is that you just need to ensure that students have done some, they've done some thinking with it. Mm. You know, they the. You've managed their attention. You've tried to break it all down into small steps. You try to start from a blank page and start with concrete examples and go from familiar to unfamiliar and take into account their prior knowledge and do all of this stuff. But they do need to have done some thinking because it's, it's not just on you.
1: So just just to clarify, because I think now that I'm, now that we're talking about this, I think I might not be doing this very well, if I'm being completely honest. I think a lot of times it is I would kind of explain things. I would show it under the visualizer and then just kind of give them some questions to crack on with. So would that, am I right in thinking that if, let's say, we went through something under the visualizer and I explained it, and I'd say that they could then spend two minutes time with the person next to them Kind of take turns in explaining what we just talked about with each other. uh, Given that they're doing it properly, obviously, yeah, you you have to Um, structure
0: that quite well, yeah,
1: yeah. So would that count as rehearsal? Would that count as sort of?
2: uh, Yeah, I I definitely think so. I think there's a whole bunch of ways that you can go through that rehearsal Mm -hmm. stage, and it might be verbally, it might be written down, it might just be on whiteboards, it you know, and ideally, in the perfect world, it'd just be students thinking to themselves, and they don't have to do anything, and they just Mm -hmm. think it through, Um, but you know. Allowing them to see that there are a multitude of ways that they can process the information and we can help them to process the information. I think it's a really vital part of doing a good explanation because otherwise we haven't achieved the goal, right? There's, there's a difference between us delivering a good explanation and an explanation being effective. And that is whether the explanation is understood. And, that's, and at that point, we're allowing them a little bit of space to do the understanding and then we we can go further than and check the understanding afterwards um, and if yeah, they and don't the, understand
0: you're explaining again in a slightly different way
2: yeah exactly Probably. So, and that, that's one of the ways that we use booklets here is that we've tried to make sure that our booklets are the written explanation within a booklet is our plan b because yeah. if they go around and fail our check for understanding we didn't use the booklet as our explanation in the first place because we were using our visualizer or our graphics tablet or whatever it is. And we've now got this lovely plan B ready in that scenario where they haven't understood it. And I think, you know, if if, if there are any, any people out there that are thinking about booklets and how they might want to use them, that is one way that I think you can assuage some people's fears of it completely taken away teacher autonomy and things. It's not it's here, you've got the complete autonomy to deliver your explanation, but the text that you've got in the booklet is a really nice plan B for if you're out of specialism or if it just goes mm. wrong and helps you sometimes plan your explanation. And, and that's one of the ideas that I've really thought a lot about this year. And what, what we've used, and, and this is what I've used a lot from Springboard, is Springboard doesn't have, oh, sorry, Springboard, QC3 science. Um, <laughs> It doesn't have a, a a huge written element for students. There is no standard textbook as one of its features. There's a teacher book that helps you deliver effective explanations, because you don't want the students just to be experiencing everything just through reading everything.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: so that that's one of the things that we've it's really clarified my thinking, I guess, this year.
0: That's. Because we have exactly the same problem where teachers might come in from a non-booklet school and look at ours. So we actually don't have printers at our school and we have to order everything into print in advance. So you get given these, right? This is for your lesson. And people are like very confused sometimes. But um, shout out to my colleague, Liz, who came up to me on one of her first days and said to me, she was like, right, so do I get this right? I just explain in whatever way is best for me. Um, they've got the written notes as a backup. And then that's basically all the or the workbook, that's the activities they're going to do. I was like, bingo, that's the one. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think it's really, really powerful. And yeah, it doesn't take away that teacher autonomy, but you need to get people practicing what their effective explanations look like. Because obviously with that plan B there, it can very easily become, let's just read this together, everybody.
1: Yeah, that becomes plan A yeah. instead yeah. of... Yeah, because yeah. I think one thing I, I, I do sometimes, but not enough is... Because I've made some booklets together with... Um, Adam Robbins and Ryan Badham quite a few years ago and they are probably neat updating but uh, sometimes I like I would explain something and then I would print them that particular page of the explanation for that lesson and I get them to highlight key things um, that we've mentioned in uh, during the explanation like key takeaway points I guess I kind of think if I don't do that enough because printing is um very a very valuable resource and we've got to be careful with yeah. our printing um but um but yeah it is something that I do think that is quite important and definitely that, something to take away and that
2: can be another form of rehearsal too can't it that you've you've heard an explanation now you're going to read an explanation and highlight it and just the if you're doing highlighting properly that is you're trying to pick out the very key things and you're not just blindly highlighting every yeah. single line until the page is yellow <laughs> That is a form of you rehearsing the idea, and because you're you're thinking about it, you've got to make some informed choices to pick out the key words, and it's just a really simple form of rehearsal. I think. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um. So yeah, I think um. Yeah, I think it's 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 really. uh, Thank you again for um. Kind of, you know, talking to us about this Tom, because I I literally could have spoken
0: about this all day. I realise I think explanation (laughs) might be my favourite bit of teaching.
1: Yeah, same. Like, I just love thinking about different ways to present information in a graphical mm-hmm. way because that's literally my whole YouTube channel. So uh, <laughs> it, is, it is it is, quite a fascinating thing. But I definitely, now that you got me thinking as well, is um, the thing, the rehearsal bit, I think, is what I probably need to work on because I, I kind of sometimes, and I, I'll start questioning myself because I always think to myself, I'm going to explain this one really, really well and then I'm going to give them some questions to practice. But I probably didn't, I think I just jumped straight to check for understanding instead of allowing them that opportunity to think. Mm -hmm. And and, I kind of merged the two together. You see what I mean? Like instead of having that extra step, but actually, I can see how having that extra step would be helpful because A, they are having some time to kind of internalize the information that they've just learned. And and actually, throughout that time, they probably would think of some new questions that they want to ask or clarify something or actually misconceptions and stuff that they might have that you know maybe i will notice if they're going through that process so that's something that i definitely need to think about how to work on because hmm. i'm very happy with most of my explanations if it's within my subject knowledge uh but actually it's it's going to be important for me to think of a way of rehearsing it or giving deliberate opportunities for rehearsal so that i could check that they're effective because that really hit me hard of You said the difference between delivering a good explanation versus effective explanation. So like, yeah, Mm -hmm. actually, I don't know. I probably need to double check on that one.
2: I think it's a really big place that you can show adaptive teaching in practice is varying how much rehearsal time a different class needs or a different student within your class needs. If you know that you've got a student that is going to take a little bit more time to process something, that's when you can give them a little bit more rehearsal time than the rest of the class. Or, you know, if you're mm-hmm. teaching separate science and you know that they get things incredibly quick a lot of the time, like you're you're prepared that rehearsal might be just five seconds of talk to your partner or ten seconds of talk to your partner. Mm-hmm. But sometimes mm-hmm. you notice, you know what, they haven't got that. They need to rehearse that for a little bit longer. Yeah. And it's it's a nice moment where you can really clearly show adaptive practice, I think.
0: I think that's a really good point as well. So my booklets where I've you know, I have my explanation, then I'll say transform and there's like a blank space for something to happen in the booklet. I've been challenged on that before as like, well, what about the students who can't just do that from scratch? And, you know, I have to say, well, that's where I know I'm on my graphics tablet. I'll, I will be with that class. I'm like, right, let's do a table together. Yep. Have a few seconds on it by yourself and then, or I might fill in the gaps. And it, for every class, it looks different. But as a lead practitioner now, my role is not is to make sure that, that is, that's used consistently across the department and people aren't just going like, go on get on with it um, yeah, and, and yeah. everyone is using that adaptive teaching so yeah that's mm-hmm. the hat I think I need to be wearing and the big takeaway for me from this um conversation I think excellent
1: nice. well thank you again so much Tom for being with us that has been really, really amazing yeah it is yeah like I think I've already said this is probably one of one of the most important parts I think Because if you can get the effective explanation well, then the rest sort of follows as well. Um, Mm -hmm. And it it kind of lays down the major groundwork for it. So, yeah, honestly, thank you so much. So, um, uh, and Tom mentioned a few sort of um, research. Uh, sources that you kind of mentioned so i think we will probably compile them and then put that in the description uh beneath the sort of podcast the, the description for the podcast bit um so that all the links will be down there and um again if you want to hear uh learn more from uh tom as well uh there's his website uh tom com. um again we'll put that link uh, as well in the description but um for anything ri- else yeah go on. so i
0: might actually just add in um I'll add in the link to my blog this time as well, just because I think um, I've talked about my booklets a lot, so um, I might just yeah, put that one. link there so people can have a look as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, um, yeah. Actually, there there are quite a few things that we can probably pr- like a few yeah. different website links as well that we'll probably come up with as we do the post production for this episode, and then we'll probably compile them all together. Because yeah, you're right. The, the booklets and examples of effective explanations, or seeing examples of explanations, would be great. And I remember. Correct me if I'm wrong, there is a particular page on the CoxSciSci website that is called the Library of Explanations, I think. That was compiled Mm -hmm. quite a few years ago. Um, And it's it's been a long time since I checked on that one. But yeah, we'll definitely put that in as well, because it's just examples of effective explanations by lots of different teachers within the community um, or sharing good practice. So I think that would be a really good way of, you know, modeling examples for effective explanations, uh, that would be quite nice to to do. So yeah, if you want to uh, hear more about all of this, then please, like I said, ch- uh, check out Tom's uh, website and check out Shelley's booklets um, uh, or go on to um, the Sai website uh, to look at the library of explanations and all of the links in the description below. So yeah, thank you again. Um, and I think we'll wrap this up. Thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks Tom for, very much for
0: having me. Coming after a long a long term and happy half term when it comes finally for you.
1: Thank yeah, you very much.
2: Lovely to speak yeah. to you both.
1: Yeah, it's great. Right. Bye bye. See ya. Bye bye.